This episode will cover themes of racism, sexism, gender-based violence, sexual assault, and the death of a child. We advise anyone sensitive to these topics to take the necessary precautions before listening, even if that means skipping this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the podcast where we talk about the question, where do you know them from? And this season, we are talking about Tessa Thompson. So we're going to be watching every single one of her movies in order. And this week's is kind of a big one. It's an interesting one. Elizabeth, do you want to take it away for us? All right. Starting off strong. Three stars. I love every single actress in here, but I'm exhausted from seeing Black women traumatized on screen. Like, can we get a happy ending for once? Fair. Excellent point. Four stars. I just know English teachers froth over this one. (laughs) I'm sure they do. And then finally, and most hilariously, one star. Tyler Perry, you will pay for your cry. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just so ominous. (laughs) It is. I really want to know because I have no idea. And maybe it's just that I am not culturally literate enough. What do people have against Tyler Perry? I think what people have against Tyler Perry is and I don't know this because it is not my experience, is kind of situated in the Black experience. And I think it's that okay. kind of argument over like whether he plays in too much to like, quote unquote, being Black. Like if he's uh-huh. profiting off of stereotypes or if he's like creating media that's actually for Black people or if he's creating media uh-huh. for white people with Black people as the butt of the joke. Definitely not the case with this movie. <laughs> this is my first Tyler Perry movie. This is a I bonkers think. one to be your first Tyler Perry. yeah i know i've only ever heard of tyler perry being the butt of the joke like in american fiction he is the butt of the joke in a bunch of other movies he is like the butt of the joke and i'll check (laughs) the girls check their letterboxd (laughs) i've seen three percent of them apparently i bet it's just this movie yep okay i take it back did you see temptation i saw a movie that he was in called vice and i also saw a movie that he directed, A Jazz Man's Blues. Mm. You've only seen one movie that he's been in? Yeah. Oh, okay. I saw Star Trek, He's actually. been in a lot of movies, but that's not necessarily the same as his, like, directing style. Yeah, I've seen two movies that he was in because I saw Star Trek and I saw Vice. And I've seen two movies that he's directed. Interesting. This one and A Jazz Man's Blues, yeah. I would argue that those two movies are not emblematic of his directorial style. <laughs> Anyway, this movie is Four Colored Girls, and it came out in 2010 and was directed by Tyler Perry. The screenplay is also written by Tyler Perry, but this original source material is not. Yes, it is based on the play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough by Tazaki Shanje. And I'm very sorry, that is definitely pronounced wrong. So many apologies. But yes, it is based on this play, which has a very long name. Notably, this is a choreo poem that consists of a series of poetic monologues, which is something that comes across, I think, fairly clearly in the screenplay. The playwright Shanjay originally wrote the 20 monologue poems that are featured in this play in 1974 as separate poems, and then she wove them together with dance and song. They are communicated to the audience by seven nameless African-American women who were only identified by the colors that they wear. They are the lady in red, orange, yellow, green, blue, brown, and purple. And 
as we said in the content warning at the top of this episode, the poems are pretty heavy. They talk about rape, abandonment, abortion, and domestic violence. And the movie also is very heavy. It is quite dark throughout. All of the women experience significant trauma. That's not true. Gilda does not experience any trauma other than on the trauma screen. of being a black woman. Yeah, on screen. I think that this movie takes some pretty serious departures from the source material. Having not read it, obviously there's probably more departures, but it does name all seven of the women, which I think is interesting because if they are explicitly not named for a reason in the play, why would you name them in the screenplay? That's a little oversimplifying, but still, I think it's weird that they have names in the movie and they don't have names in the choreo poem. And also, there is no dance. Well... There's no dance there's a to a ballerina or there's a dancer teacher. There's no dance to express to move the plot forward. Like the poems aren't performed as a dance in the movie. One of the characters is a dancer, so she does a dance like cut over something else happening, which we'll talk about. But this movie isn't a musical or a dance. The poems, I did read some of them. They're written in vernacular, and she has a pretty unique poem structure and very unorthodox punctuation with very pronounced syncopation as well. The poems, I'll note, are also significantly longer than the monologues that do happen in the movie. Although each of the women does get a monologue and each of the monologues does feel like a poem, particularly the one that Tessa Thompson delivers. All of Tessa, Because when she is doing it, she is saying it kind of to a beat, whereas the rest of them are just kind of saying it and it sounds like it would be a poem, which I think makes Tessa Thompson's performance stand out from the rest of them because she is kind of like, very much leaning into the poetry of it yeah her performance is definitely distinct from the others but like we said this movie is written and directed by tyler perry it is edited by Maisie hoy and the cinematography is by alexander grushinsky it is 133 minutes long and the cast is absolutely stacked when i tell you that probably the only other movie that is as stacked as this one is like the muppets movie or the wes anderson movies that that we have done It has Janet Jackson as Joanna or Joe Bradmore, otherwise known as the Lady in Red. Tandyway Newton as Tangie Andros or the Lady in Orange. Annika Noni Rose as Yasmin or the Lady in Yellow. Loretta Devine as Juanita Sims or the Lady in Green. Carrie Washington as Kelly Watkins, the Lady in Blue. Tessa Thompson as Nyla Adros, the Lady in Purple. Kimberly Elise as Crystal Wallace, the Lady in Brown. And Whoopi Goldberg as Alice Adros, the Lady in White. You'll notice that there were three Adroses in there, Whoopi Goldberg where Alice Adros is the mother of Tandy Way Newton's Tangi Adros and Tessa Thompson's Nyla Adros. Also featured in the movie are Felicia Rashad as Gilda, the Lady in Black, Macy Gray as Rose, the Lady in Pink, who has a very minor role. She's only on screen very briefly. Michael Ely as Beau Willie Brown, who is not married, but cohabitating and co-parenting with Crystal Wallace, played by Kimberly Elise, the Lady in Brown. Omari Hardwick as Carl Bradmore, the husband of Joanna Joe Bradmore, the Lady in Red. Hale Harper as Donald Watkins, Kelly Watkins' husband, the Lady in Blue. Khalil Kane as Bill, the at one point love interest leader aggressor of Yasmin, the Lady in Yellow. And Richard Lawson as Frank, who is the love interest slash maybe husband of Juanita Sims, the Lady in Green. He is very in and out of the movie and actively cheating on her, we think. So there you go. Huge cast. And we'll get back to them later. The score is by Aaron Zygman, and it was produced by 34th Street Films and Tyler Perry Studios. And it was distributed by Lionsgate. Your plot from Letterboxd. About existence from the perspective of 20 nameless Black females. Each of the women portray one of the characters represented in the collection of 20 poems, revealing different issues that impact women in general and women of color in particular. 
I'm going to just note that I think that is actually the description of the play because there are not 20 women in this movie. There aren't 20 women in the... There's only the seven characters in the play the also because yeah. they're the rainbow, but... I don't know where this 20 number is coming from. They're not the number of monologues. Either. This movie has wildly disparate <laughs> response. It has a 32% on the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter, a 73% audience score, 50 from Metacritic, and Metacritic users in a unique display of respecting women gave it a 6.2 A moment out of for 10. the Metacritic users, if you will. We're so proud of you, baby. This is one of the only times, notably, that Metacritic users have rated a film featuring women higher than the critics mm. have. Also, typically, Metacritic across the board is lower than the other platforms. Here, they are kind of dead in the middle of the Rotten Tomatoes ratings. And Letterboxd, typical, has given it a 3.1. You're hard-pressed to get more than a 4 from Letterboxd. They're yeah. very critical. So overwhelmingly mixed reviews. Reviewers said that this movie did not hold up to the source material, meaning the play, and that Perry did not push enough boundaries in telling these stories, which affects the amount that we come to understand the characters. Many people did have nice things to say, though, mentioning that it was some of Perry's best work and particularly praising the acting. And I have to say, anyone praising the acting is right. All of the women did phenomenally. All of the men did phenomenally, yeah. too. I'll this was an incredibly well-acted movie. Yes, the acting shone mm -hmm. through. Tessa Thompson won a Black Reel Award for Outstanding Breakthrough Performance, and the film also won several awards, including an NAACP Image Award. So mixed critical success, yeah. but acting definitely praised. I think that honestly, a lot of the reviews that I read about this were like, the source material was not made to be adapted into film. Perry really struggled to like make that happen. I mean, it's like it came out a fine movie in my opinion, but it's also like it's definitely a movie adaptation of something that is not a movie. It doesn't really hold up as a good movie in and of itself. It holds up as a more accessible yeah. version of the poems, I think. I've never had the opportunity to see this play, but I do think that if I were to see the play, I would be better off having entered seeing the movie first. Yeah. Because based on what I read of the poems, I feel like I would be a little bit confused. I would get there eventually, but I would be a little confused just because like they go. So the movie begins with all of the women sort of sprinkling in a little bit about themselves. They sing a song collectively. And then in the play, it jumps directly from that like joint song where they all introduce themselves into Tessa's monologue, where she's explaining how she lost her virginity at her graduation, which we'll return to, I promise. But it just kind of jumps straight into that, which I think would be hard to jump into as an audience member. But here we are more led into it with more pre-movie. A couple of production notes. Mariah Carey was almost in this movie, but backed out due to her pregnancy. And also when the playwright was asked about what she thought of the adaptation and whether she had any reservations, she responded, I had a lot of qualms. I worried about his characterizations of women as plastic. In reference to the film post-production, she said, I think he did a very fine job, although I'm not sure I would call it a finished film, which is, I think, a very fair criticism, yeah. but also that has to be devastating to hear as Tyler Perry. Maybe he doesn't care, but just to call something that you have worked on not finished is really mean. I think it's also interesting because like to to adapt someone's work and then for them not to be happy with where your adaptation lands must be weird. It's universal yeah. too. It happens all the time. I don't think that someone would say this about something that they worked on so that to me signals that like she wasn't really involved in the production process didn't advise on it and yeah. that makes me sad definitely i think if i were to make a movie 
and it was from a source material, then I would invite the author of that source material if they were well, alive I think, to consult. I think that probably they did. I mean, I don't know this, but it's possible that they did invite her and she declined. But then to like to decline and then talk shit about the movie is kind of interesting. So that to me says that she wasn't invited. I don't know. I I would love to know more about that whole production element. But I also thought that like saying that it's unfinished is kind of fair. It's really fair. Yeah, actually. I totally agree with the criticism. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think before we can say really anything about this movie, we have to talk about the woman. And I don't know if you want to just talk about the woman in order, like go through their conflicts in order, because they are intertwined. If anyone has ever seen, for example, Love Actually, Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, you've seen a movie where there are multiple storylines and they are all intertwined. This one does that to an even greater extent in that all the women pretty much know each other fairly well. Multiple of them live in the same building. They all reunite at the end. So not just their lives intertwining, but them like actively living these lives together. I do think that the most effective way to do it is going to be to go through them all individually, even though we're going to get to everyone. But I think that it's okay. Like they can overlap in the same way that the stories do. But since the play was designed to be like individual monologues, I feel like studying each character individually is probably the best way to talk about it. I like that. And you know what? Let's go in rainbow order. Why not? So does the cast list. So why shouldn't we? Exactly. Let us begin with Janet Jackson. Slay. Honestly, <laughs> what a get. What a huge get. Are Joe you kidding Bradmore. Me? Yeah, she is playing a high power girl boss. However, I do have to say Joanna Bradmore is clearly very insecure about where she is. Because when we first meet her, she is in her office. She's like a fashion executive. She's a magazine fashion magazine editor. Yeah, good for her. You know, that's a high power job. But when we first meet her, she is being rude. She has forced the lady in green to wait in her lobby for an rude. hour to have a meeting with her. The lady in green is there to ask her for a donation that she said that she would give. Yeah. I think she didn't say that she would give a donation, but she said that she would meet with her. So the lady in green is waiting in this lobby for over an hour, waiting for Joe Bradmore to be ready to take this meeting. To Joe Bradmore's credit, her proper secretary was not there. The lady in brown was not there. And so she may not have even known. Regardless, Probably you could tell that there's someone in your lobby. And so that's a little bit rude. But the lady in green runs a community center. We'll get to that more when we get to her. But she runs this community center. She is going to Joe Bradmore asking for money, essentially asking her to sponsor the community center. Joe Bradmore says, no. Basically, she says, I pulled myself out of poverty. And if anyone else wanted to, they could. The lady in red is very interesting to me because she is definitely like pretty much our only point of like class struggle. Everyone else is kind of of the same socioeconomic world. And then Joe is like very not like she has said, she's like pulled herself from this and yet she can't separate herself from it because like this woman works in her office that is going to become central to the story. And like Juanita Sims, the lady in green is coming in and asking her for money and like So I think that she really represents this, like, you can't separate yourself. Being a Black woman is always going to connect you to other Black women, regardless of if you feel like you've separated yourself from other people's socioeconomic class. At one point, okay, so when she denies Juanita, the lady in green, this money, Juanita is about to take this. And then she turns around on her way out of the office and she kind of goes in on Joe in a way that I think is very revealing of what we've just been saying. She says, there's no color in here. And she's talking about the office. She's saying this is a very white office, like physically the walls are white. There's really no decoration. But she's also saying, and there's no color in you. 
And at this point, we've been calling her the lady in red, but Joanna has been wearing exclusively black. Right now she's wearing all black. In future scenes, she'll be wearing all black. She starts to get pops of red over halfway through the movie until by the end of the film, she's dressed entirely in like a scarlet red. But she starts in all black. I don't think that's fair. Her office has red accents. Her magazine is called Rouge. Yeah. And she consistently like, is when we first see her, the first thing she says is like, it's not passionate enough. It's not lush enough. So she like already has these underlying elements associated with the color red yeah. to signal to us that she is the lady in red. But you're right that like, she doesn't start wearing more color until later and costuming is important, but yeah. she's like clearly red from the beginning. That's fair. I didn't notice those elements. The other women in the play do wear their signature colors most of the way through. A couple of them change a little bit, but Joanna is the one who has the most, I think, stark costume change and color change. Yeah. But I just think that accusation from Juanita is so interesting because, like, red is the first color in the rainbow. And to, like, cut it out is pretty major. To say to someone, you have no color in you or in your office. It immediately sets up this metaphor for us about, like, color and race. Oh, it's such a good line. It's so brilliantly integrated into the scene. I think that was maybe my favorite one-liner in the movie is is her accusing her of having no color in her office or in her. Because it is kind of exactly what Joanna has been trying to do to herself, is to cut herself off from this Black community, from this community of women that the rest of the movie features. And for someone else to do it to her feels like a line too far, like a bridge too far for her. Mm -hmm. So, oh man, it's just so fascinating. I loved it so much. But as we said, Joanna does develop more red in her palette. She starts putting a lot more red accents on. And by the end of the movie, she's dressed entirely in red. And I don't know why exactly that is other than maybe she is getting more comfortable in her own skin. She's getting more comfortable like around these other women. We kind of learn more and more about her life. We learn more about her relationship. She's married to this man. She's married to a man that is cheating on her. Red adultery. like. The layers are crazy, you guys. Uh, Notably, he's cheating on her with a man, which makes things a little complicated also and adds some weird homophobic stuff I don't really love. But (laughs) yeah, that conversation was so wild where he came out to her. Much of the movie is shot in like very close quarters. The set is very closed. Not a lot of like big space. But in Joanna's apartment, when she has this confrontation with her husband, their apartment is huge. And I think part of that, it's also very white. Mm -hmm. And I think that reinforces all of these themes that Alexandra and I have been talking about. It establishes that she is of a dramatically different social class than every other character in the movie. Like Whoopi Goldberg's character's apartment is an active hoarder situation. Like there's stuff everywhere and it's really cramped and uncomfortable. Whereas like Joe's apartment is unnervingly empty, much like her life, you might say, as her husband is leaving her and she has no friends. Yeah, so that's essentially Joe. She does not get a ton of screen time. What her most sort of significant screen time is, we'll get to later when we get to the lady in brown. That is the conflict in Joe's life is that she is being cheated on and that she is insecure in her social position. Mm -hmm. Next, let's go to Orange. Tangi. Tangi Adrose. Like a tangerine, one might say. Exactly. Yeah, some of their names, I'm like, you did that because you wanted to be associated with the color, didn't you, Tyler Perry? Yeah. Tangi is living alone on the same floor with the lady in black, Gilda, and the lady in brown, Crystal. She hates both of them. She's a hater. She's a certified hater, as my roommate would say. They kind of hate her, though. Yeah, she's kind of a bitch. It's like a real, well, yeah, it's like a real us versus them kind of situation. Like, 
there's beef between her and everyone else in the building. It's unclear if that beef started with Tangi or is a result of other people ostracizing Tangi or both. Like if it's a chicken or the egg situation. Part of the reason that they are ostracizing Tangi is because she brings home men most nights. She's a bartender. A libertine. Yeah, she's a libertine. <laughs> a liberated woman. Scary. Notably, it seems that she only brings home married men. And I think that it is maybe because Tangi mm. fears commitment. And she, yeah. uh, she says to one of these men, just likes to fuck. He doesn't believe her. Yeah. And I think that that is like an example. Like this is one of Tangi's main struggles is one that she hates everyone around her, but also that no one believes that she is sexual. Like, yeah, not in a demeaning way. She just likes to have sex. Everyone in the movie places a different emphasis on Tangi's sexuality and sexual expression throughout the, like everyone thinks there's a different reason for it. And then we kind of unpack it in like a culminating scene between her and her mother. But like, yeah, it's super weird how everyone is just like so angry at Tangi for fucking all the time. Like that she, Tangi herself is like hyper fixated on sex. Like at one point she says to Tessa Thompson's character, like, oh, you've been fucking. Like I can tell you've been, that's a quote. Like you've been fucking and who cares? Like, (laughs) yeah, she is hyper fixated on sex. Most times that we see her in her, her apartment, unless she's like coming back from getting groceries, she has just woken up from having sex with a man who they always stay the night too. I'm like, what are you doing? Leave, leave her apartment. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's because they're mostly on business trips. And so they're like free hotel and they can't bring her back to their place because they're married, they're married, (laughs) which she does not mind because again, she just likes to fuck. She does not want the commitment of a boyfriend or a partner or whatever. What Elizabeth is alluding to, though, is that in this culminating scene, so throughout this movie, we see Tangi fighting with Nyla, her sister, and with Alice, her mother, and of course, also with her neighbors, who she hates and who hate her. But in this culminating scene, we'll talk more about when we get to Purple, to Nyla. Alice is very mad at Tangi for something that she does to Nyla, and Alice runs into the apartment, essentially like breaks in, basically, and she starts yelling at Tangi and saying, like, how could you send her to this abortionist? How could you possibly do this? Like, you knew this was going to hurt her. Tangi yells back at her, you did it to me. You made me go. You forced me to have an abortion that I didn't want to have. Alice then also kind of throws back in Tangi's face that she, Alice, was molested by her own father, who then married her off to a white man. And we will get back to this when we talk about Alice. But she says, essentially, like, I've been abused by all these men. And so were you. Like, my father and also your father abused you. And this is why you're like this. Which is a huge thing to throw at your kid who's like, probably over 30. Like that's a big, maybe she's younger because Tessa Thompson like just graduated high school, but she's like a full adult. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a huge fight unresolved. That trio is really interesting because I feel like, I mean, most obviously it represents like generational trauma and like how to break out of it or if you even can, if you should or want to, right? Because I feel like Tangi is very much like still, she separates herself from Alice and Nyla, but she is still very much like entrenched in whatever bullshit is going on. Whereas like Nyla is trying to like get out, go to college, this kind of thing. A theme for Tessa Thompson's characters is to try to be getting out and going to college, but she's trying to break out. The other thing that I think is really interesting about Tangi is that she, for whatever reason, 
has control of the money in this situation. Yes. So like Tanji, when her father died, Tanji got control of all of that money. So her mother and Nyla have to keep coming to Tanji for money. And Tanji is like notoriously not going to give it to them. This I think is really interesting because she's also hypersexual. So I feel like she's super masculine coded. Yeah. Like her language is brusque. Like she's like, you've been bucking. She's not like, oh, you lost your virginity. Like she doesn't use feminine language. She's very confrontational. She's very Mm -hmm. kind of violent. She's very like sudden in her movements a lot of the time. She's also like, while she's, this is maybe reading too much into it. While she wears like really feminine sexual clothing, she's not, she doesn't have a lot of boob or a lot of butt. She's kind of like an androgynous shape. She kind of represents like androgynous sin. Like in this confrontation that she has with her mother in the poems that they read together that her mother says to her, like, I know you, you're the devil. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's so interesting. Like, does the devil have a gender? Like, no, I don't think so. I think also, and this is possibly just because Alice mentions that they have a white father, but I think it's relevant to note here that Tandyway Newton is quite light-skinned, and she is, between her and Tessa Thompson, one of the two light-skinned people in the movie. I think most of the actresses are fairly light-skinned, with the exception of, I think that Whoopi Goldberg might be the most dark-complexioned of them. She is, yeah. But I think that it is relevant because, like, a light-skinned Black woman historically has like a higher earning potential and so that could be because she can pass yeah she can pass and tandyway is not passing in this movie she is definitely like living as a black woman also is the only one in the same with the job alice is like wandering around essentially panhandling she is passing out flyers and i think getting money in exchange for not giving people flyers her job is god yeah (laughs) her job is god And Nyla is a student, so she does not have a job that we see. She might have a job, like, on the side. But yeah, huge trauma exposed with Tanji there in that her mom forced her to have an abortion, which we don't unpack. They hug at the end, or they group hug at the end. And that's on Tanji. Like, I, yeah, that's kind of all there is until we get to the other parts of that trio. Yeah. So now for yellow, so we can continue moving through our rainbow. Yellow is Yasmin. Yasmin is never given a last name, unlike most of the rest of the characters. She is a dance teacher. Specifically, she is Nyla's dance teacher. I think it's contemporary dance. Well, when we first meet Yasmin, other than being the teacher, we also find her in this sort of meet-cute situation in which she is going on a walk with this man who is kind of like, come on, you haven't answered my question like, And the question, of course, is, will you go out with me? And we find out that he asked her out two weeks ago when they met on the subway in a sort of meet-cute situation. And immediately, because of the nature of this movie, I was like, this man's going to turn out to be bad. And unfortunately, I was correct. I didn't clock that at all, which is so embarrassing. I was like, oh, yay, they're going to fall in love. I know. I had a brief moment of hope. And then they went on this date, and it was fine. She had a great date. When he dropped her off, he did say, can a brother get a hug? Which, like... No, that's when he shows up for the next date. On their first date, I was like, wow, yeah. so cute. Everybody's he, doing He, like, walks great. her home and watches her go into her building, you know, like a nice, courteous type of thing. However, as she is walking into her building, he does say to her, maybe next time you could cook. And I was like, boo, boo. rude. And so the next time she does cook, because she really likes him. And he comes in and she has dinner on the stove and she's like, here, do you want some wine? He, at this point, it says, can a brother get a hug? He looks at her back as she is bending over to pull things out of the oven. 
And then he starts undressing. He takes off his shirt, his jacket, his whole fit comes off. At this point, then he rapes her. It is, I think, also a really brutal rape scene. We say that every time we watch a rape scene, but it is really brutal. Yeah, I know that we say this literally every single time. This is the most, hands down, this is the worst one I've ever seen. Something about, I mean, I don't want to like get into it because that's uncomfortable. It's so much more violent than the Nightingale one because the Nightingale one is shot more empathetically. When I'm watching the Nightingale, I'm not angry or like disturbed. I'm sad, which is maybe a me thing. That was probably a me issue. But I just, in this one, it's like a prolonged fight. Whereas like so much of the Nightingale shot is like her face. And like, of this course, is not to say yeah. she's not resisting. She obviously is like, but like, it's the way that it's shot, I guess. This, I just made me uncomfortable in a way that the Nightingale... I think it's important to mention at this point that the rape scene is also intercut with scenes of the opera where the lady in red and her husband are at this opera where he first sees a man. So we're cutting in between the opera and this brutal rape scene. And when we're in the rape scene, we flash between her face and her looking at a timer. And you can see the timer going for like multiple minutes. I think it gets up to three or four minutes. And I think that addition of her watching the clock is so awful. It's so long. The whole scene is so long, which I think is another reason that it was like so much more intense for me and that I did not appreciate it. I also, to talk more about the cutting between the opera and the sexual assault scene, it's such a choice. I don't know that it was worth it. I think there's some good things to say about it. And that is that the connection between art and Mm -hmm. trauma is really important to the movie because it happens again later, this kind of parallel structure of someone going through a traumatic moment and it being overlaid with cuts of someone experiencing art happens again later. I think that the connection between art and trauma, both in Black feminist experience and to the plot of the movie is important. I also would not have wanted to see that scene with sound. So I was appreciative of the sound being replaced with operatic music. I really wish that I could have identified the opera, but I did Google it just now and I don't. It is an opera that anyone knows. Like the song that is playing is La Donna in Viola. But I think if it's not recognizable, like if it's not clearly from any of the operas that slightly culturally literate people know, I'm pretty much out. I don't think that what's playing is supposed to be important. Otherwise, we'd see more of the actual opera. Mostly see like Joe and hear the opera. That scene is unsatisfying for me because I feel like the sound of the opera is really impactful. Yeah. But the actual shots of the opera aren't. They just keep us from having like three uninterrupted minutes of a sexual assault, which is appreciated, but not like he could have done something better with those scenes of joe i think yasmin after this though has truly a terrible time of it like if it is possible to go downhill from being raped she goes downhill she is alone in her apartment when tessa thompson comes over at one point because she is seeking shelter she does not answer the door because she is scared out of her mind that it's going to happen again she holds up a knife and just sits there in the dark and waits for tessa thompson to go away at one point when she's in the hospital after he rapes her she tells the police officer like this was a rape. I had one sip of wine. You need to prosecute him. Yes, I invited him into my apartment, but it is still a rape. And the police officer is like very hard to prosecute, you know, shaking his head. But then redemption. The dude gets murdered by another woman that he is attempting to rape. Yasmin is called in to identify the body, which has to be super traumatic for her. Like surely someone else could have identified him, but I guess she needed to. I 
actually think that someone had identified who it was, but they wanted yeah, her to identify that that was her attacker. But she says, like, what happened to him? And they said another woman he was trying to rape stabbed him. And she was like, good. I wish that it had been me. And then she slaps him. Hell yeah. Solidarity, baby. She marginally improves after that. I mean, just holy shit. Imagine imagine you're in that situation and yeah. you have to get called in to identify the body of your rapist. That seems so hard. Sidebar, though, that actress is so good at crying. Yeah. She cried on demand like so many times. And holy shit, the talent. So much of this movie is yeah. holy shit. Imagine if you had to blank, which is just like crazy, <laughs> crazy that this represents yeah. the real lived experience of countless yeah. women. Let's unpack that. So that's yellow. Our next lady is my favorite, and that's green. I love Juanita Sims with my whole heart. I think she's the best character in the whole damn movie, and not just because she has the cutest green eyeliner I've ever seen. I love Juanita also so much. I think it's important to know that Juanita is the most dedicated to her color. She has green eyeliner. She is usually wearing head-to-toe green. Briefly, in the middle of the movie, she transitions to a sort of teal, and I was like, are you okay? But then she goes right back to green. And you know it. Juanita is an icon. She is working for the women in this community center. She is teaching them about STDs, about how not to get pregnant if they don't want to, about how to have safe sex and be smart in the streets. And she is just doing such great work. And Frank is cheating on her the whole movie. I think that what I love most about Juanita is that it would be so easy. Just like Joe is red because she's like angry, passionate, you know, high fashion girly, it would be so easy to make Juanita jealous. Like it would be so easy to make her only thing envy. And I guess to an extent you could read that, but I don't even think that she's jealous of whoever Frank is cheating on her with or that she's jealous of like their attention from him. I don't think jealousy has anything to do with her color. I think it's like growth, grassroots organizing, like all of these other like really excellent green coated things. And I'm like, wow. I love Juanita. She's so fucking funny. She's the closest thing we have to comedic relief in this movie. Her and Gilda. Oh, and she's got this great, her monologue is all about like my things, but obviously they're not tangible things. They're like the qualities that women hold. And she says at one point in it, I'm giving all of this to people and like to men and they don't even know that they have it. And I'm like, oh my God, yes. Like, yes, (laughs) let's make emotional baggage. Like let's give it an actual object. Oh, it's so good. Also, she comes in first scene. She's got this like relationship burn that she's trying to give to Frank. And she's like, take your stupid plant back. I watered it and I kept it green with our stupid love. And I was just like, wow, honestly, what's her face? Kate. It's Kate Hudson. Oh, yeah. What Elizabeth is not saying is that when we first meet Juanita, she runs into the building and goes to Frank's door. And we find out as she is yelling at him that she has left him multiple plants. None of the plants are in the hallway. We have to assume that he has taken them inside or that someone has removed them, possibly Gilda, who is the building manager. But she's brought him multiple plants. She has come to yell at this man multiple times for ghosting her for like two weeks. And yeah, she's my favorite by far when it is. There are, okay, listen, her obvious conflict is that like she's trying to find love, right? But you know what? I feel like she's such a powerful character because like even though she's having these relationship struggles, 
She is there for everyone else immediately. No mm-hmm. questions asked. She has no direct ties to anyone she's in this a building. Nurse. She doesn't live there, but she's like automatically a caretaker. She like jumps in, no questions asked in all of the trauma in this movie. And then at the end, she has this really powerful moment where she basically leads the ending poem. And she says like, my love is too blank to be what ignored, to be cast away, something like that. And then they all yeah. fill in the blank. Persistently, she has such strong convictions about love. She knows her own work. Like, okay, sure, she keeps coming back to this man, but she's strong enough every time to walk out and be like, look, you're not treating me well, so I'm gone. Like, she gives him a lot of chances, and she gives Mm -hmm. everyone in the movie a lot of chances, but she also Mm -hmm. knows when to walk away. And I just think that that is, like, so amazing. Like, I love her. Be my mom. He leaves her, and then later he shows back up, and she's like, no, you lost your opportunity with me. You had so many chances to take me back, to stop cheating on me. All of these things. And like Elizabeth said, she is so strong and like completely cuts him out. And fuck him. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the that on Juanita. She has perhaps the least drama of all the characters. Mm-hmm. She shows up, is a caretaker, does great work. But most of the movie is her mostly like harassing Frank. You're like, is he actually cheating on her? And then at the end when he leaves her and you're like, ah, oh, damn, that Frank, that rascal. But yeah, on to Blue, Kelly, who also I think... Besides, like, black and pink has some of the least amount of drama. Yeah, Kelly's a kind of a peripheral character to the whole thing. Kelly's central issue, all the women have a central issue. As you can tell, we've gone through most of them now. Kelly's central issue is that she cannot get pregnant because she has an untreated STD. She is married to a police officer that investigates Yasmin's sexual assault and also a later crime. She works with Child Protective Services, and so it is an especially sore spot for her that she cannot get pregnant herself because she loves kids. We first meet her because she's coming to do a wellness check on Crystal, the lady in Brown's children, because they've been admitted to the emergency room twice, so it's like standard procedure. And she's at that point chased away from their apartment by the lady in Brown's boyfriend. And I think that it is important for us to get through the lady in Brown before we then revisit Blue, because... Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah, we'll come back to Blue. But just know that she is a social worker. She's kind of in and out of the hospital, not for her own injuries, but for other people's. Next, we have Nyla, who is purple. Tessa Thompson. Yes, Tessa Thompson, our girl, the focus of this episode. She is a high school graduate who notably graduates in all purple. Her (laughs) robes are purple. Of course. And she is going to college. And yes, this is a theme for Tessa Thompson now, the second movie that she has wanted to go to college to escape her situation. The first, of course, being Mississippi Damned. However, it is almost immediately apparent because she throws up during her dance After bragging about losing her virginity. After giving a whole monologue about losing her virginity. She names like five boys and she's like, and they're all cousins. She says they all wanted to have sex with her and then she has sex with one of them. Anyway, so she gives this whole monologue. And again, we've already mentioned that Tessa Thompson in this movie, everyone is speaking poetry, but hers sounds the most like spoken word poetry because it like is spoken to a beat and it might just be because she is dancing, but she Mm. is like really poetry. It's very lyrical. Yeah. But yeah, so she is pregnant, which is a problem because she's going to college. And also she doesn't have kid money. It's a problem because she doesn't want to be. And she doesn't want to be, exactly. (laughs) That's it. But she doesn't have any money because she doesn't have a job. And so she goes to her sister and she's like, hey, Tangi. Her mom goes to her sister. Her mom goes to her sister and says, I need money. And Tangi throws her out. And then she goes to her sister. Nyla goes to her sister and says, I need money for college applications. And this is when Tangi says, you've been fucking. You need this money for an abortion, don't you? 
when she is saying this to her, essentially she is saying like, when I had my own problem like this, I went to X and X address and this and this place. And here is exactly how you get to the building and the person that you ask for. And this is how much it costs in a very like a hypothetical type of way. And when I was seeing this, I was first thinking like ally. She is helping her sister get what she needs. But she's the devil. But, but Tangie's the devil. Yeah. Tangi then after refusing to give Tessa Thompson the money, walks down to the dance studio where she is allegedly trying to pay these college applications and says, here is the money to Yasmin, the woman in yellow. And Yasmin's like, no, I don't need that. Tanji is like, she's been fucking. She's very mad. And she goes back to her apartment and stays mad. I have no idea where Tessa Thompson got this money, but she does go. She gets this abortion from the woman in pink. And truthfully, Tessa Thompson does a phenomenal job of looking terrified and pale and sweaty in this woman's apartment. She looks so small. She walks into a basement apartment and you get a shot of her like from above. Like the descending yes. into hell coating is deep. She also wears darker purple in all of these scenes. So like she is yes. corrupted. And then she walks through this like sort of alley and there's a bunch of people hanging out in there. It must be like a courtyard in this apartment complex. Then this woman, the woman in pink, yells down at her, you're looking for me, aren't you? And then you get sort of this down shot on Tessa Thompson. Again, like a judging shot. And so she walks up, is told to take off her bottoms and her shoes, and she does, and she sits down. And this is when she's just looking so, like, sick to her stomach in a not morning sickness way, in a fear way. And this is exactly why abortion should be free, safe, and legal. Yep. This woman. It's horrifying. The woman in pink, horrifying. Her apartment, dirty, uncleaned. Her tools are just forceps and a speculum and something else, like a scraper. I don't know. I couldn't identify that tool, but it looked scary. They're in a large paint bucket that she then pours bourbon on and squishes around. And then we don't see anything happen. But the last shot of that scene, of this abortion scene, is a fisheye lens. Or for anyone who doesn't know what a fisheye lens, it's the freaky one. When it looks kind of distorted at the edges and everything looks kind of weird. It's blurred around the edges. It looks like a circle. It makes the person in the middle look silly. You get a fisheye lens of the woman in pink saying some kind of weird things she says her monologue is the most abstract of those included in the movie yeah so then we wake up tessa thompson in a hospital bed surrounded by her sister and her mother called in they are very upset with her for doing this particularly her mother who is very religious and this is for those of you playing along at home the second time that tessa thompson has wept in a bed facing the camera And this time was even better than the first one. She is so good at it. The first one was in Mississippi Damned after she accepted money from the boy who raped her as a child. And she just is so devastated. I didn't like this monologue. (laughs) I didn't like the monologue. I I thought the the acting was good. I really struggled because one of the qualms I have with this movie is that the verse picks up and starts at places I don't understand. I don't understand the rule about when we're implementing the actual text from the poems and when we aren't. Yeah. And I just feel like while this moment is pivotal and it makes sense to me logically that the monologue should go here, when I, the viewer, am watching it, I'm like, I wish it was a little more raw. And whatever, poetry is raw, but it's also like, it's not human speech. I was like, okay, I get it. Like, I kind of wish that this movie had either committed to all poetry or had cut out the poetry part. I kind of wish that this movie had committed to the poetry also. It's really interesting because I haven't watched the play. 
So I don't know that there are no men, but there are no men listed in the cast of the play. So I feel like all these parts with the men in them is built for the benefit of like the movie watching audience. And I just wonder, like, might it have been better if we just used the whole source material? I think this is back to our original point of this is not something that was meant to be adapted to film. Definitely. Anyway, in her monologue that I don't really like, she says, my womb is dead. And I think that's pretty metal. That's a good line. That is a good line. the rest of it, I was just like, we could just have Tessa crying and doing good acting and not necessarily her reading. Which she was. She was doing great acting, but the words were bad. Anyway, I feel like we've kind of talked enough about Pink because there's nothing else to say about her. That's her only scene. So now on to Lydia Brown. I think she's the central character. She definitely ties everyone together because she like works for Joe and like lives in the building and everyone in the building is really concerned with her. Everyone in the movie is kind of concerned with her story. So the Lydia Brown or Crystal has been in an abusive relationship with this man who is played by Michael Ely. And I have to say, quick shout out, Michael Ely absolutely destroys this role. He is really I good in it. I have never seen a human person with such beautiful eyes in all my life. No, I'm so serious. When that man turned to face the camera, I was like, oh my God. They've been in a relationship since they were 14. I think that he was not always abusive. It seems to have been a switch after he came back from war. So it may be a signal to us, the audience, that he has a sort of a PTSD type of situation going on or something that he is angry at the government because he's not getting his veterans benefits. I think that he is explicitly suffering from PTSD. I think she says that out okay. loud that it is PTSD. I don't remember that. I do know that she says a lot of things like, are you taking your meds? You need to be taking your meds. So I'm glad that you caught that. Okay. Well, this man, Bo, is deeply abusive. He beats her. He beats both of their children, their daughter, Kenya, and their son, Kwame loudly enough that their neighbors here notably gilda our apartment manager narc <laughs> not narc no she should have narc yeah but she is a narc okay. like she's the one that called cws yeah yes she did she's the one who called in the lady in blue and was like you need to come get these kids out because they are being abused she maybe should have called also for crystal possibly the police we'll get to this when we get to gilda but i think yeah. gilda is complicit crystal has this like heartbreaking monologue when she tells him about how she has loved him since they were 14 and how he is breaking her heart and how she doesn't ever say to him that he is abusing her or the kids. She is very, very calm. Every time she talks to him, she is dead calm. And a lot of the time he is pretty calm too until he snaps and then he is filled with rage. There's so much tension in their scenes. Mm -hmm. Them together, amazing. The chemistry reads must have been electric. Like (laughs) they, they do so well off of each other's energy. Those two actors. Absolutely. They truly dominate the scenes and he's not in very many. So yeah, so this is how the woman in blue gets involved. Tangi is involved because they're across the hall neighbors. Gilda is involved because they are next door neighbors. They share a wall. Um, Nyla is involved because she runs into her house at one point when she is mad at Tangi. Basically, everyone in the whole movie is involved in the Lady in Brown story. Also, she is the Lady in Red's secretary. At one point, the Lady in Brown forgets something for work at her house And the lady in red is like, I'll drive you to go get it because we're in a hurry. So they go. She goes upstairs. Her husband starts being violent towards her, starts being violent towards her kids because he is accusing her of cheating on him. And this is where it starts to go truly bonkers, bananas, insane. You guys, when I tell you I was shocked, you cannot understand what this man does. He picks up both children, kicks out the window, and dangles them outside of the window for like a prolonged period, long enough for everyone in the street to notice Gilda to hear what is going on. 
Gilda hears what's going on and runs outside. He runs down the stairs Everyone yelling, Everyone in the building her, is on her. the street trying to help the kids. Yeah. But she runs into the street and is getting everyone to witness this. Joe, the lady in red, is looking up seeing this and she's shocked, of course, because so were you. Then he lets go. They slip out of his hands. They slip out. Okay. Sorry. Like, he still kills those kids. Yeah. But, like... He commits double murder. You watch their little fists come through his hand. So, like, he obviously... His intention was to exert power over Crystal and like the only leverage he has is their children. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it was like an intentional thing. And I think that we are supposed to view him as someone that is like deeply traumatized and driven to do this. I don't think we're supposed to think of him as evil. I think we're supposed to think of him as like possessed by the plight of like the military industrial complex and also alcoholism. Yeah. Whereas like the guy that rapes Yasmin like is evil. He's a bad guy. And he's he a gets serial rapist. At the end. Yeah. yeah. Do we learn what happens to Yeah. Bo goes to jail. We see Bo in a jail cell. Okay. Sharing a cell. So we see Bo in jail. We also see Crystal being held by Gilda, the lady in black, by Juanita, the lady in green, by Joe, the lady in red, by Kelly, the lady in blue. Literally half the cast is holding her as she just breaks down and sobs. And she is a beautiful crier, by the way. Yeah. So this hospital scene is devastating because she has lost her husband and both of her kids in the same moment. This also, to circle back to Blue, like we said we would, really gets at Carrie Washington's character because she did that wellness check on them and like let herself be pushed out. Brown is like, no, 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 you're good. Like, my kids are good. Like, they just fell down. Ha ha ha. Like, you don't need to. It's all good. And then she has all this guilt because those children died Mm -hmm. and she can't have her own children. Like, So she's kind of fucked up by that. Everyone is fucked up by the kids being defenestrated. Briefly after that in the movie, we see Crystal, the lady in brown, on the sidewalk where her children died. And the lady in blue walks up and sees her trying to scrub the bloodstains out of the sidewalk. This is... This was somehow one of the harder scenes in the movie for me to watch was her trying to scrub her children's blood off of the sidewalk. She was having not quite a monologue, but definitely a quasi speech in which she excoriates the city for running through her children's blood and like not noticing or like not caring that they're stepping in the blood of innocence. Which is so powerful. It's so powerful, like symbolically and as a scene, it is so powerful. Yes, literally. No, you're right. Like, how dare we all just go on about our lives when terrible things are happening? Like, oh my God, (laughs) so good. And heartbreaking. And as this is happening, Nyla, the lady in purple, runs through steps in the blood and gets yelled at obviously obviously and this is when we discover that she is distraught because her Mm -hmm. mother has tried to cast cast the devil out of her basically she like poured hot oil on her and things like that like trying to do an exorcism and so this is when they take her into the lady in brown's apartment so that's the lady in brown she has a pretty rough go of the movie Mm -hmm. she also notably initiates like kind of the ending sequence i got like they're all there for her and then she kind of starts the last poem yeah, that brings everyone together. And it's kind of the beginning of her healing. The end of the movie is the beginning of her growth forward. Exactly. Which just leaves black and white because we've made it through the whole rainbow yeah. plus brown. We do have two more women left. White Alice is the mother of Tangi and Nyla. Mm-hmm. She is, I think, what most people would call a religious nut. She walks around muttering, handing out flyers. She worships a god called Elnohim, 
or El Nohim. This is very similar to the Judaic Christian god Elohim. I did read some literary criticism of this movie and of the play, and someone wrote that El Nohim is literally El or the no him, the not him. Oh. Or a non-male god. However, she still refers to the god as male. And this article suggests that she worships a non-male god because she has been so abused by men. I don't know if I buy that read, but I just figured I would throw it in there. She's also definitely mentally ill and a hoarder because she is very much like, don't touch my things. I think it's important that she is the lady in white. I don't have a ton of thoughts about why the other ladies are the colors that they are, but the white is like sanctimonious, self-purifying, like thinks it's better than everyone else, that type of thing. And it plays into first the she made her daughter have an abortion and two when she is telling tangi that she was molested as a child and that her father married her off to a white man he said to her don't sleep with the darkness and i think that that is kind of maybe like a resonating thought for her is don't sleep with the darkness whoopi goldberg is so talented i think something to think about in relation to the ladies in white and black is this conversation of like white and black as colors and in art White is the absence of color. Yeah. But in science, white is all of the colors. Mm -hmm. And then in like vice versa for black, right? So like, is Alice an absence of color? I think yes. But at the same time, like all of these struggles that the other women are having are happening in her backstory. Like this oh. issue of like parental trauma and then also like marital trauma, sexual assault, like religious struggles and purity. Like all of these are happening to the younger women in the play. Mm -hmm. So I think these two older women being white and black are like really important in the sense that they like knit everything together and are diametrically opposed. That's fair. I honestly, when I was watching this, did not give Alice really any thought because she is not on screen very much. And when she is, yeah. she's often the butt of the joke mm -hmm. until she has that confrontation with Tanji and she tries to like expel a demon from Nyla. Yeah, I like that read a lot though. And so then on the flip side, we have Gilda, the lady in black, who is the apartment manager for Tanji and Crystal. She is a nosy neighbor. She reports both for abuse, which we love her for. I think that she should have perhaps called the cops. But like the cops, not super effective. That's fair. You know, I mean, CWS wasn't super effective either in this. Right. Far less aggressive and life altering as an action in your brain as a bystander than calling the police. That's fair. At least child welfare, like, you get opportunities to fix your shit before they come and take your kid, in theory. That's true. Gilda is also, of all the women, besides the lady in pink who has really no background herself, Gilda has no story. She is just yeah. in others. And to your comment about whether Alice, the lady in white, is not a color, maybe both of them are not a color? Like, is she without a color? Gilda doesn't wear black in the way that the other women wear. I wrote, why doesn't she have a color? She's listed as the lady in black in the cast list, but she's never signaled. She's never coded with the color black, mm -hmm. which to me says that she's all of them. Or she's none of black them. black happens when you mix all of them. Yeah. Wow, good one. Or she's none of them. Yeah. Or like, is she the audience? Because like in a theater setting, we are, we're sitting in the darkness, we're in the right? Black, yeah. So like, and she is watch. She's the apartment manager, so she's watching all of this stuff happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like. She that has the this most. very dramatic outcry from the street. That's like someone stop it. And she very clearly feels like she's not like the interjector, the change. Like, and she has a conversation with Tangi where she basically is like, "I know where you are. I was you. Like, all I'm doing is watching this play out because like it happens to everyone, kind of shit." So I don't even know what to do with Gilda. I like the read of Gilda, the lady in black, as the audience. 
a lot. She's got her own shit in a way that I think would help make the argument that she's not an audience insert, but so does that audience. The audience brings their own baggage to a performance. No one is ever neutral watching a play or any media. So there's your cast of women. As you can tell, a traumatized bunch. Now that we've talked about all the colors, there are some cute little duos that I would like to talk about. And I would also like to talk about the metaphor of color and the rainbow. Go for it. Okay, so when we first meet Joe, the lady in red, she is having a confrontation with green. Those two colors are diametrically opposed. They are opposites. They are in conflict. Orange and purple are also opposite colors, the two sisters, and they represent drastically different representations of sexuality and like virtue, which Mm -hmm. I think is very interesting. And then we already talked about white and black. Also, Tangie's entire apartment is purple, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting, and I don't really know what to do with it other than... Just know in my heart that she actually loves Nyla, despite saying that she doesn't like her at all. You know what? I think I actually do want to go back on this because I think when we were talking about Tanji, I kind of was like, yes, she is the devil. She starts that way and she paints herself that way. But a very important scene happens between Tanji and her mom, White, where they are reading monologues over top of each other. I don't Mm -hmm. super love this scene because it's really hard to hear both of them at the same time, which I know is the point, but it's like hard to analyze the scene because you can't look at both poems at the same time. In that poem, in those two monologues, you learn a lot about Tanji. She has decided to like reclaim her sexuality as a method of control. And you learn through that scene that she has a lot more of a complicated relationship with it than she leads on. Like she leads everyone to believe like I'm independent. I'm just doing this because I can do whatever I want. But then you learn that like she is also hurt by the way that men treat her and that they just view her as a sexual object. So like she has a much more complicated relationship and that she's like full of rage, that she's like really angry about what the world has done to her. And she says like, I'm the wrath of women in windows. And I just think that that's like so powerful and beautiful The point of all of this is to say that I think that's why her apartment is purple is because like she has so much more in common with Nyla than we actually realize that she does. And that like perhaps that represents her inner self, like her inner life, right? Because people don't really come into Tanji's apartment except the men who she's like let in. So yeah, I think it connects them in an interesting way. But also it speaks to the conflict within Tanji's character that like she's orange, but all of her things are this opposite color. Yeah. I think the color theory kind of goes crazy in this movie. <laughs> it really does. It's kind of wild. In addition to beyond just colors, the women are characterized very much in archetypes. Mm-hmm. The same article that I was quoting to you earlier, the Voice Magazine article by Wanda Waterman, she describes the women as being the wise crone, the saintly, the battered wife, the debutante, the vamp, the priestess, and the career woman, all of which are defined female archetypes and all of which appear as one of these characters. And I think that is really useful, one, as the storytelling device, and two, probably it helps to communicate the play better since it is poems and therefore a little bit more confusing than a typical play. Just to finish up the like color rainbow spectrum discussion that there's several points where people talk over each other. And I think that that is very interesting because it's a auditory spectrum. Like it's not harmony because they're not singing. The things are layered over each other, like colors layer into each other, right? We mixes of color. Also, the opening title card to this is truly some of the worst graphic design I've ever seen in my my whole life. And the exit title card. Yeah. It was not a very cute movie graphic design wise. No. I will also say just on a brief editing technical note, 
the transitions between women kind of ass like it's yeah. just a dissolve and it looks so shitty and so oh. dated yeah and then of course at the end they all hug so they make a rainbow <laughs> good one yeah, yeah they do are they in rainbow order when they do that yeah i think they might be wow good one maybe brown should have been in the middle she is is she i is think brown so. in the middle of I'll the check. rainbow they're not really in color order but they're pretty close no they're not at all but that's okay Oh, I think brown is supposed to be a neutral color. She's grounded. I think that she is like the least archetypey one, you know? Like, I think that she... Other than being the battered woman. I guess that's true. Actually, you know what? Speaking of shots that are beautiful, we mentioned a couple earlier, like Tessa Thompson descending into hell. But speaking of Crystal being held, at one point, Glinda holds up Crystal in this like pieta style shot and it was beautiful i loved it it was in the light of a newly opened window crystal had been just vibing in her apartment in the depths of sadness and the depths of her grief and all the windows were closed and then glinda goes in there and she whips open the curtains and she's like let in the light basically and then she holds her up into the light and crystal's like sagging down and it was just oh i loved it so much but you know what's crazy i didn't really like this movie very much <laughs> no it made me think a lot, and I liked certain elements of the story and the writing, but none of that was, like, about the movie. Like, there are good shots, but I wouldn't recommend this movie. I thought it was honestly kind of hard to watch, <laughs> and I would have drastically preferred to have read the play or watched the play. Just like you said when we watched Mississippi Damned, I think that there are parts of this movie that we will never understand because we are not Black. Yeah. And they did say a couple of things about race, but most of the things that they said about race were just like really good one-liners. There was a couple of things. Tanji says, it's all I've got being alive and being a woman, being colored is a metaphysical dilemma I haven't conquered yet. Bro, that was and a banger. That was a heater. I was like, holy shit. This is my problem with the movie. It's that this movie is intersectional. It is inherently about like, it's called four color girls who have considered suicide. So right, that's the intersection of class, mental health, race, gender, all of these intersectional identities, right? And Tyler Perry fits into like, I'll say one, maybe, you know, maybe he has more about socioeconomic and like mental health than I'm giving him credit for. But I feel like the fact that a man wrote and directed this movie really, really negatively impacts it. I agree. And I want to give men the benefit of the doubt. And I feel like we've done a good job talking about male directors who do an okay or good job portraying the female experience. But I don't, I think Tyler Perry makes choices in this movie that a woman would not have made and it doesn't make the movie better. This movie should not have been made into a movie and that yeah, in the process of doing that, Tyler Perry was the wrong choice. I think that a black female director would have done a much better job. I would want to see this movie directed by a woman. I think it would be really interesting. As I've said a million times and is clear from my analysis, I am so compelled by this story and the way that it is told and the metaphor behind it all. So I hesitate to say that it's like a bad movie, but it also like in all technical respects, it is a bad movie. <laughs> like yeah. it is not particularly edited, shot or directed well. Yeah, I think that truthfully, the only good thing about this movie is that the acting is so yeah. good, insanely good. And at parts, the script was good. And I think that at the parts where the script was good, it's because it was from the play, Yeah, which I now would like to see, mostly because I'm curious about a choreo poem, a very different type of play. It's so crazy to me that you would watch a choreo poem and be like, I can make this movie. I think for me, this movie is a three, maybe a 3.5, just because like, it wasn't a good movie. Mm -mm. I was deeply interested in the characters, 
and in watching the acting, but it was not a good movie. Even the part where he's holding the kids out from over the window is like so obviously like CGI. Yeah. The ground. And I'm glad no kids got held out of an actual window. All quality elements of this. The costuming is also pretty bad. Not great. This is a great and a compelling story. Bad movie. Exactly. Tessa Thompson, I think, did great. Yeah, I think this was tough source material. It's hard to read a poem in a way that seems natural, as you want movie actors to do, right? Movie acting is a lot more subtle Mm -hmm. than theater acting. And I think that she leaned a little more theater, which worked for her character, who's like a high schooler or like recent high school graduate. And an artist. She's a dancer. And an artist. But there were parts where I was like, this is kind of giving a like... (laughs) 18-year-old doing a monologue for a theater class, and I don't know how purposeful that is. That's fair. But I liked it. I think in general, I think it worked for the character, so I'm not mad about it. I'd give her like a four. I agree with four. Um, A couple of notes. This is Tessa's first time on screen with long hair. I think that she is kind of killing it in every scene that she is not reading a poem. And when she is reading a poem, it does feel a little bit extra, but in a way that I didn't hate. I liked the first poem that she reads, the one in the hospital bed, not so much. I thought that she did an excellent job of crying in this movie. She cried on demand, which is hard, shaking and tearing up. And I think, you know, very powerful to watch. Also, something that I noticed about Tessa Thompson in this movie is that she is sort of a look away actor. She looks away when she is having really big emotions, but she also has kind of big eyes. And so I feel like she uses her eyes very well. I want to fact check you on that, but I don't feel confident. Yeah, I want to fact check myself. Something to look out for. I just, a couple of times in this movie, saw her looking like down. I thought that was an interesting move. She does do a lot of like look up through lash Mm -hmm. situations or yeah. She's got great lashes for it. They're very long. She does. So there you go. Yeah, that's that on Four Colored Girls, 2010, directed by Tyler Perry. If you liked this episode of Where Do I Know Them From, you can rate and review us on the podcast listening app of your choice. You can also follow us on Instagram to find out what movie we're reviewing next and when new episodes drop and fun content about the Oscars and other general movie things. And you can tune in next week for a new episode. Thanks for listening. 